Take your Bibles and turn with me once again to Mark chapter 14. And we will complete this section that we have been looking at for the past two times that we met together of Jesus and His disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, and we'll begin reading with verse 32. Then they came to the place which was named Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I pray. And He took Peter, James, and John with Him, and He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then He said to them, My sorrow is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up. Let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. As we continue to look at this particular passage and this scene here in Gethsemane, we see that Jesus has left the majority of the disciples there before they entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see that he only takes the inner three, they are often called, Peter, James, and John, with him further. And these three disciples were given many privileges throughout the ministry of Jesus. They experienced some things that the other disciples did not get to experience. We see that these are the same three that were carried up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they also were carried into the house where Peter's mother-in-law was sick and they saw her healed. We see that they went with Jesus to heal the daughter of the synagogue ruler as well as going here into the Garden of Gethsemane. Did you know that these three disciples out of all twelve are the only three that are mentioned in Acts? None of the other disciples are mentioned in Acts except for Judas. It gives us, of course, the episode of his experience after he had betrayed Jesus. But these are the only three that are mentioned as far as ministry is concerned. So Jesus takes these three into the garden to pray with him, and he tells them to stay in a particular place, and he goes a little bit further. As I mentioned last Sunday night, possibly 30 or 40 or 50 feet away to where they still could hear Him and they could still see Him because we see even here in this particular passage that it mentions that they saw that He was troubled and distressed. Jeff Thomas says, He separated Himself from His closest friends and they become spectators 
who are to be praying as well, yet they fall asleep in his time of need. Matthew Henry said he ordered his disciples to keep with him, not because he needed their help, but because he would have them to look upon him and receive instructions. He said to them, Tarry ye here, watch. And he said to the other disciples, Nothing but sit here. But these three he bid to tarry and watch, as expecting more from them than from the rest. As I mentioned last Sunday night, and I remind you, if you were not able to be with us last Sunday night, you can still go back and watch that particular sermon or listen to that particular sermon and what was said, as well as the Sunday before that, because this is our third Sunday on this particular passage, and we're looking at three different particular subjects in dealing with this passage. And we see that these disciples have been tired, that they were weary, that they were wore out because they had been up for a long time. They had spent several hours in the upper room observing the Passover, hearing Jesus teach to them. And as I mentioned before, you can go to John and begin in John 13 and go all the way up to John 17 and you see all the teaching that Jesus gave them there in the upper room. And then we see that they observed the Lord's Supper. And then we see that Jesus had the great high priestly prayer. So they were in the upper room for some length of time. We don't know exactly how long, but it was getting late in the evening. And now we see that they go to the garden where Jesus prays. So they were exhausted. Now last week we saw that Jesus prayed three different times that this cup might be removed, that there might be a different cup from him than this cup that he was looking into. And of course, that cup that he was looking into was the wrath of God, the wrath of God upon the sins of men. And all of those sins of his people would be placed upon himself. And that was a very fearful sight. It was something that we see here, says, overwhelmed him exceedingly sorrowful of soul as he looked into that cup. And like any human being, he did not desire that cup. But we also see that he was in utter submission to his heavenly Father, as he says, not my will, but what you will. Now today I want us to look at the failure of these three disciples, these three men, and realize that we often fail Jesus Christ in our Christian walk as well. First, their failure is inexcusable due to the circumstances. On June the 7th, 1982, President Reagan had had a full schedule and he had gone to the Vatican. And there at the Vatican, the Pope gave a 53-minute sermon, if you want to call it that. And during that 53 minutes, Reagan dozed off. I don't blame him. But the news media ripped him for dozing off during the Pope's sermon. Well, you can go back and you can listen to that sermon and you may doze off as well. I wouldn't even encourage you to listen to it. 
you would probably fall asleep because it is rather boring. But the news media really attacked him for that. I wonder what the news media would say about this episode. Here Jesus is in the garden, and Jesus has asked his three disciples to pray with him and to watch. And they fell asleep. I don't think the news media would rip the three disciples for falling asleep under Jesus' admonition to pray because they could care less what Jesus says and what the Bible says. But yet these three disciples were overwhelmed with weariness and therefore they fell asleep, but yet at the most critical moment in history. On November 2018, an Australian pilot fell asleep and he missed his landing. Once he woke up, he circled back around and landed safely. No one on the plane even knew that he had missed his landing. What was interesting to me is that 56% of the pilots admit at some time or another in a flight of dozing off. Now that might cause you to think twice about uh, flying. But thank goodness they have autopilot, so that helps us out a lot. I've thought many times on that 17-hour trip to go all the way over to Africa about that very issue. Of course, they take more than one pilot, and I'm thankful for that. But they put that thing on cruise control, and they just let it fly by itself, really and truly. But yet it still doesn't comfort you a whole lot knowing that 56% of the pilots admit to dozing off at some time or another. This particular pilot, this particular Australian pilot, had not slept for 24 hours. Now that concerns me even more, that he had not had any sleep, because I think you need to have plenty of sleep, especially if you're going to land one of those big birds. Now, what we see these disciples did not do is what Jesus said. They were to observe what was going on. They were to be eyewitnesses. They were to behold what was taking place, not only so that they might record it, and and we do see that they did observe, and of course the Holy Spirit gave them knowledge of what transpired, but yet Jesus had asked them to watch and pray. Our Savior humbling Himself before His Heavenly Father in this manner is something that all of us would take great delight in seeing. But their failure to stay awake was not something that was small. They were were given a special opportunity. Jesus had requested their help. They they saw his agony, they saw his weariness, they saw his deep distress and his trouble, his exceeding sorrowfulness even unto death, and yet they fell asleep. You look at this and you wonder, how in the world could they fall asleep? They saw his struggle, they saw the battle with darkness and temptation. He had asked for their help. Only time would cause them to realize their mistake. I mean, this is the first time I can remember that Jesus actually asked such a question. I can't think of another time where Jesus asked anything like this. Now, yes, they were young. 
They didn't fully understand who Jesus was at this point. They, they didn't fully understand why He was there. They didn't understand why He had said that He is going to Jerusalem to die. They didn't understand any of this really till after Pentecost had occurred. And we know that they were not full of the Holy Spirit and their eyes had not been open to understand and comprehend these things. And that's how it is in many people's life. A good example of what I'm talking about is Chuck Colson. You, you know who Chuck Colson was. He was on the President Nixon's, uh, he was his lawyer. And uh, eventually he was charged with a crime and had to spend time in jail. And later he started uh, a prison ministry. But Chuck Colson did not really understand who God was, did not know God until a friend of his read him the book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And after hearing his friend read that book, he drove home that evening and he got to his house and he just sat there in the driveway in his car thinking about what he had heard read. And here is what he said. He said, I prayed my first real prayer. God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but somehow I want to give myself to you. I didn't know how to say more. So I repeated over and over the words, take me. I had not accepted Christ. I did not know who He was. My mind told me it was important to find out who He was, to be sure that I knew what I was doing, that I meant it and would stay with it. Only that night, something inside me was urging me to surrender. To what or whom I did not know. I stayed there in the car, wet-eyed, praying, thinking for perhaps half an hour, perhaps longer, alone in the quiet of dark night. Yet for the first time in my life, I was not alone at all. Out of Chuck Colson's failure in life, he said to the Lord, the Lord that he barely knew, take me. He gave his life to Christ. He committed himself to Christ. And even though these disciples failed to stay awake, God uses this particular episode for his glory. For us to be able to learn truth ourselves. Second, we see that they failed despite the privileges that they were given. I mean, they had been with Jesus how long, children? Almost three years, right? They had walked with Him. They had seen all the miracles that He had performed. They had heard the sermons that He had preached. They, these three had been with Him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had just been in the upper room for hours hearing the wonderful teachings of Jesus. They had heard the wonderful prayer of Jesus. They had seen Him institute the Lord's Supper. I mean, all of the privileges that they had were insurmountable. I mean, what a privilege it would have been to be there. I mean, have you ever thought about that? 
Lord, if I could travel in time, you know, you see those shows on TV, uh, space travel. If I could travel in time, if I had one place to where I'd want to go, I'd want to go back and be there and see Jesus in person. Have you not ever had that desire to see these things? Well, they saw them. They were there. They experienced these things. Earlier in their ministry, they had even been given a special anointing and given the authority to preach the Word of God. They were able to heal the sick. They were able to cast out demons. They were able to perform great tasks with great joy. They had been with Jesus. We can be guilty of measuring a pastor's success by the conduct of his flock. These were the flock of Jesus. I mean, thinking that if the pastor preaches good theological sermons, that his flock will automatically live a lifestyle that is biblical. But sadly, folks, that's not true. There's a lot of good preachers out there and their flock doesn't live a biblical lifestyle. Peter, James, and John had been with Jesus for three years. They had heard His teaching for three years. So why did they fail? Was it the lack of teaching to them? Was it the lack of example? Was it a lack of pastoral care? Well, of course, it was none of the above. I mean, it doesn't matter what privileges that one has, for privileges alone won't keep us safe. They won't keep us from sin. I mean, many children have been raised in the church. They've been taught the truth. They've had godly examples. But what? They continue to live in sin. They continue to go their own way. They continue to rebel. What we must realize is that the church is made up of sinners. Those saved by God's grace, we must still realize that we still sin. We sin every day. If we don't, if we don't admit that, John tells us in 1 John that we are liars. We must admit that we sin often and we need forgiveness every day. We see this, of course, in the book of Acts. Throughout Acts, you see that Paul deals with Christians, and many of those Christians fall into sin. Paul started those churches. Paul preached at those churches. He pastored those churches, some for a year, some for two years, some for more. Yet there were many sinful problems that took place in those churches. Some were very sinful. I mean, read epistles. What do you see? Paul addresses all kinds of sins in the church. These churches had a tremendous privilege, but none of those privileges kept them from sin. Likewise, these disciples had just had a mountaintop experience, had they not? They'd been with Jesus in the upper room and heard all those teachings and seen him institute the Lord's Supper and heard Him pray the great high priestly prayer there in the upper room. And just moments after that, they fell miserably. I mean, there's no way that a privilege alone is going to keep us 
from sin. There are times that we are just like these disciples. We hear a sermon. We're moved to repent. We confess our sin to God. And what happens? We leave the church building. We get in the car and some child does something. And what happens? We lose our temper. I admit it. I've had that happen to me. So don't look pious as if it doesn't happen to you because you're a sinner just like me. I hope and pray it doesn't happen today. But yet it happens because we are sinners in need of God's grace every day. And these three disciples needed God's strength. They needed His grace to be able to accomplish what Jesus had told them to do. Thirdly, we see that they failed despite their office and their position. I mean, they had been called by Jesus. They were His apostles. They were the most famous. These three, the inner circle. It wouldn't be long before James would be martyred. And then later, Peter crucified upside down because he did not want to be crucified like his Savior. And John, of course, outlived all of them and gave us revelation. Some would say, we expect too much of those who lead the church. We shouldn't expect them to be holy. Our leaders are sinners also. But the question must be asked, what does God expect? And Scripture clearly gives us the qualifications of those who lead the church. Those who lead Christ's church must meet those qualifications. They are men that are to be above reproach. They are to be godly men. Now, I didn't say they were perfect men. You know that. I don't have to emphasize that. But they're to be godly men. They're to meet the qualifications that God has given us. Of course, there's only one who is sinless, and that's Jesus Himself. But we must realize that God uses sinners to do His work. And sinners are often inconsistent. They often fall asleep when they should be watching. They're not perfect, for they're human beings, weak stumbling, and sometimes overwhelmed by the duties that are placed upon them who may disappoint others due to their inconsistency. But all leaders must know the truth about themselves. If someone pretends to think he's something different than he is, one day he will have a rude awakening and fall flat on his face realizing that he must look to Christ every day for the strength that he needs. Likewise, a church should not presume too much of their leader's status, realizing that they are but men saved by grace and in need of their prayers. As Jeff Thomas said, the congregation must reckon with the creatureliness of its leaders and its leaders must reckon with their own humanness. The office alone will not keep them. And how true that is. Leaders will fail. 
just as these disciples failed the Lord. But as long as it doesn't disqualify them from the office as overseer, they must be willing to repent and renew their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. Fourthly, these men failed even after Jesus had warned them. Earlier, He had emphatically said what? One of you is going to betray me. Remember? In the upper room. And what happened? Every one of them began to ask, Well, Lord, is it me? Is it me? Even Judas asked the question, Is it me? And then Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him and he warned him. He said, You... Peter, Satan desires to sift as wheat. Now, interesting, the you that is used there is in the plural, so he's talking to all the disciples, even though he's making reference to Peter. And we see that Satan does just that to all of the disciples. And sadly, they didn't pay attention. They felt that Jesus was unnecessarily worrying about them. I mean, they were full of confidence. They were complacent, telling Jesus, oh, we've got it all under control. Don't worry about us, Lord. Peter, of course, was the most emphatic in that. He said, even if all... Now, that was interesting, wasn't it? He's talking about his other disciples right there before him. Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Moments later, just after this warning, I mean, he had said, never, 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 Lord, am I going to deny you. And here in the garden, he lets Jesus down. He lets him down by falling asleep. And Jesus asked these words, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? I mean, sometimes we hear of the failure of Christians and we may say, if only they had had a better pastor. Or if only they had had a better church. Or if only someone had spoken to them. Or if only someone had warned them. Well, maybe so. But these men had been warned. They had been warned by Jesus Himself. And there was no pastor more qualified than Jesus to show pastoral care. And He had given them instructions. But yet they still failed. Now not only did they fail, but they failed Jesus at His most needed time. I mean, he had asked them to go with him and he had asked them to pray and he had asked them to watch. He had taken them there, those three, left the others outside for that very purpose. Not to simply give a report, not to simply hear and see, but also to observe. To observe Jesus' humanness to observe that Jesus needed fellowship with them, to observe that He needed intercession for Himself and them, and His need for them to be on the guard so that He could pray and not have to worry about the soldiers that He knew was coming 
to arrest him. What about you and me? When the Lord needs us most, do we give ourselves or do we fail to watch and pray? I mean, we live in a day of much wickedness. It's interesting that people continue to say we're in the last days, we're in the end time because so much wickedness. No, it's a cycle. I mean, all you got to do is read the Bible and you see that wickedness is a cycle. And we're in one of those cycles in America where there's great wickedness. Are we concerned? What are we doing as far as watching and praying? Of course, this wasn't their first or final failure. By no means. I mean, we will see tonight that they all desert Jesus. And later, Peter falls into greater sin as he's confronted by a little girl and denies Jesus three times. Now, one of the reasons for this is because they did not watch and pray in the garden as they had been instructed. You would think that when they were startled by the soldiers and and the torches and, and the noise they would have been filled with guilt for not watching and they would have made a commitment and say, we're never going to allow this to happen again. We're going to be on our guard. We're going to be watchful. You would think that their consciences would have been so pricked by their failure when Jesus needed them most that they would say, we will never let Jesus down again. I will be for him and with him from this day for I will be committed to watching and praying. But this isn't the case. These who failed in the garden by sleeping failed when the soldiers arrested Jesus. They all deserted him. They all fled as the scripture reveals to us. And then we see there in the courtyard as Peter stands by the fire He fails Jesus again, even using explicit language to deny the one he said that he loved and would die for. He wasn't willing to face death, as he said. And this is a sad event. And it reveals to us the weakness of man when he trusts in himself. You would think that after receiving forgiveness and after he was restored there on the Sea of Galilee... And Jesus gives him a commission to feed the sheep. And after Pentecost, you would think that Peter would be a perfect man then, right? I mean, now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's learned from these terrible experiences. But again, no man is perfect but Christ. That's why we see later in Galatians chapter 2, when the apostle Paul has to go and he has to rebuke Peter. You remember that episode? I mean, he was intimidated by men who were keeping the ceremonial law. They were not eating with Gentiles. And and Peter, likewise, followed suit. And what Peter was doing, he was denying the gospel by his actions. He was denying that Jesus Christ alone saves. He was adding works to salvation by his actions. So therefore... Paul rightly so rebuked him. 
I mean, we can be just like Peter. That is how the spiritual life moves. I've, I've said this before. The spiritual life is kind of like the Dow market, a roller coaster. But it keeps going up, thankfully. And that's how the spiritual life does. It has some pretty sharp drops, but then it has some pretty sharp climbs as well. No man but Christ is perfect, and we have to keep that in mind. There will be ups and downs. We will fall into sins. We will repent. We'll make a commitment, and we begin to think, I can handle this without any help. Therefore, we fall again when we begin to trust in ourselves instead of looking to Jesus and the strength that comes from His Spirit. I mean, there's thousands of Christian men who have fallen into the sin of pornography. Then they're convicted and they repent of their sin. But after a while, they allow something to lead them right back into that sin and trusting in their self and fall again. Many women who are just like Eve, desiring something they don't have, ignoring the warnings of worldliness, and they find themselves pursuing the things of the world instead of pursuing holiness and godliness. Though many fall away, Jesus is willing to take us back. I mean, He looked at Peter, James, and John, and He received them back. That's the most glorious fact of all, that in spite of their sin, in spite of all of their failures, the Lord took them back. See, that's the kind of God that we worship. We worship a gracious God, a loving God, a forgiving God, a God that restores us. And we see that wonderful example in that parable that Jesus gives us in the prodigal son. Even though the prodigal son had done all the things that he did, his father welcomed him back with love and kisses and gave him the road and shoes of honor. Peter as a disciple, was often arrogant, talkative, self-centered, stubborn, weak, hard-headed, and intrusive. Not very Christ-like, was he? Isn't this a surprising portal of one of Christ's closest friends? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not in any shape, fashion, condoning inconsistency or failure. But in the last analysis, we all can be just like Peter. Sinners ministering to other sinners. Sinful pastors tending to sinful sheep. Realizing that we are those sinful sinners who have believed in Christ, the ungodly, whom God sent His only begotten Son into the world to die for so that they might be justified. 
There's not a single person here who doesn't need to say, forgive me for all of my ungodliness today. I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I'm in need of your grace, O Lord. If you are asking, how can such a failure as I be a true Christian? If I'm really born again, why do I give way to this or that particular temptation? Well, all you have to do is look at this episode. All you have to do is look at these three disciples. They bring us back to the cross. They were flawed men. But as believers in Jesus Christ, their only hope was in God's extraordinary grace. And we must face up to our despair, realizing that we have a great Redeemer whose blood keeps us, whose blood cleanses us of all sin day after day after day. If Jesus can choose and honor and use Peter with all of his faults, He's not going to write us off. We must remember that God isn't finished with us yet. We may think of sins that we would never commit. And hopefully that would be so. But let us remember from Peter, let us tremble, let us watch, and let us pray that we do not commit those sins. May the memory of our present confidence never come back to haunt us as Paul warns us. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I mean, the man after God's own heart, David himself, fell into great sin. And there are great pastoral lessons that Peter learned at Gethsemane. That which he learned there in the courtyard by the fire. That which he learned after the crucifixion in the upper room, there by the seashore, and there at Antioch. I mean, he would never learn those things if those things had not come about. Pastors must not be arrogant, but compassionate. But not only pastors, all Christians. All Christians must not be arrogant. We must be compassionate. And that is one of the reasons why the Lord took Peter, James, and John with Him there in the garden and taught them this lesson. I mean, it's easy for us to get arrogant and say, how dare that can be done? I mean, I thought about it when when I saw something. Y'all don't know about it, but there's a glass door back there and evidently some kids were playing and they were using golf balls for baseballs and they put one right through that glass door. And, you know, I think to myself, I didn't say this, but I think, you know, how could anybody do that? Well, then I thought of my own childhood. And I was talking to my son and I thought of his own childhood. And I made reference to him about his own childhood instead of my childhood. And I remember a BB gun and how many windows he shot out with that BB gun. But I also remembered also my own sins. And I can remember throwing rocks up one day. And one of those rocks landed right in the center of my neighbor's window. Car window. So see, we're all guilty. That's the reason why I say we cannot be arrogant. We must be compassionate. And show the love of Christ to others so that they might see that Christ lives in us.
Finally, Jesus roused his disciples three times. They were not affected with his sorrow and his complaints and his prayers. Their carelessness was a sign of their further offense in deserting him later. And it was an irritating thing to Christ because he had so recently warned them. I mean, they had made a commitment to Him there in the upper room. They had promised to stand with Him. So Jesus rebukes Peter for his drowsiness. Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Now, no doubt, Jesus expected better things from Peter. He would made that claim. But Peter could not stay awake from one hour. I mean, Jesus did not ask him to stay awake all night long. He said one hour. Now this reveals how weak the flesh can be. And our short endurance in serving our Lord. I mean, He does not overburden us, nor weary us by asking too much of us. Anything that He asks us to do, He provides the strength for us to do it. And all those who love Him should receive His rebuke in a right way. I mean, He rebukes them because they're wrong. And those who are wrong, they need to be rebuked. They need to be counseled. They need to be comforted. And this gives wise words of advice to them. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. I mean, it was bad to fall asleep when Jesus was in such agony. But they were entering into further temptation by not watching and praying. They did not stir themselves up. They did not seek grace. Seek grace. They did not seek to strengthen themselves in prayer. They were not concerned as they should have been concerned. And therefore, when they all forsook Him and fled and denied Him, they could look back to this and only blame their self. I mean, it was a very kind and tender excuse that Jesus makes for them. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, He didn't dismiss their sin, He's pointing out to them the weakness of the flesh. Jesus points out how He understands man. He Himself was a human being, the God-man. And if they had the power in themselves, they would have stayed awake. But they didn't have the power within themselves. And that's why they couldn't stay awake. They had no spiritual ability in the flesh. And so many think they can beat some kind of sin with a 12-step program or, or something else, and they fail because they simply replace it by another issue instead of Jesus Christ being their life, and they don't understand the weakness of the flesh. I've mentioned before how difficult it is for me, even on Sunday afternoon when we have our meal and our afternoon service. Most of the time on Sunday morning, I get up between 4 and 4.30. So by the time we have a meal on Sunday afternoon, we have our Sunday afternoon service, I am whooped. I'm tired. And it's hard for me not to nod, even, even if the sermon is great. And sometimes I'm sitting there praying, Lord, help me. I'm weak. The flesh is weak. It's wanting to sleep. 
The consideration of weakness of flesh should hasten us to pray and be watchful, especially when we know that we're going to enter into temptation. Luke 18.1, Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray. Did you hear that? That men always ought to pray, not losing heart. And Paul makes the same admonition to us, does he not? Pray without ceasing. Pray always. In other words, we ought to always have a spirit of prayer about us. Even if we're driving down the road and somebody pulls out in front of us, that we throw a prayer up to God, help me, Lord. Because we know He hears us. And the answers of our prayers may not come quickly. We hope they'd come quickly when a car pulls out in front of us, but not always. So we must renew our requests and continue to pray. We see that not only did Jesus go three times to His Father and pray, pray that there might be another cup, well, we see Paul did the same thing. Three times he went to pray that the thorn in the flesh would be removed before he received answer, and the Lord assured him that his grace was sufficient and that he would not remove that thorn. So here in the garden, Jesus cries out three times to his heavenly Father, and after the third time, he points out to the disciples that they no longer needed to watch for him because the betrayer was there, his enemy, to take him away. Let me close with these words from Sinclair Ferguson. Jesus remained faithful when his heart was breaking. We forget sometimes that Jesus' heart broke. He cried over Jerusalem, remember that? And his heart was breaking here in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the cup was bitter and when his companions were weak, in the light of his Peter's, of his Peter's words are all the more challenging. when we remember that He was there with Jesus in Gethsemane. Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in His steps. 1 Peter 2.21 The implication is clear. Without His faithfulness in Gethsemane, He would not have been faithful unto death on Calvary. This test was a prelude and a preparation for that test. It is always the case. We need to learn to watch and pray in our current situations or we will never be able to do so when the evil days come. We must learn to place our feet in the footsteps of faithfulness which He planted there. If we are to be his disciples. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this scene there at Calvary, which reveals to us our own sinfulness and our own need to watch and pray so that we might not fall into sin. Father, we pray that we would learn the truths from this passage and rightly apply them to our lives. We also pray, Father, for those that would be here today 
who have no strength over sin because they've never come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, who have no ability whatsoever to live for you, Father, because they do not have a relationship with you, how we pray that today would be the day of salvation. How we pray that they would be like Chuck Colson and say, take my life. That they would give their life to you, O God. Give their life to Christ so that they might become a new creature. That they might have the ability to live for you and no longer be in bondage of sin, but set free from sin. How we pray, Father that your spirit would work in such a manner to bring glory and honor to your name. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.